Earlier in the service, we had a reading from Matthew chapter 5. And in that short reading, Jesus was talking to his disciples and he described his people as a city on a hill, meaning that they were to be visible to the world around them. And he also said they were to be a light to the world around them. Not only was the world to be able to see them, it was to see something good, a light in the darkness. And I think it's helpful for us to have Jesus' words in mind this morning as we turn to our passage in 2 Corinthians. We're going to pick up this morning at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. You'll find that in the Church Bible on page 1163. Chapter 8, verse 16, and we'll follow this through to chapter 9, verse 5. Paul says, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and even now more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help. And I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. This is God's word. As God's people, we are called to be a city on a hill and a light in the darkness. And this passage teaches us two very simple truths that will help us. This passage teaches us that appearances matter and that accountability is crucial. Last week we looked at the background to chapters 8 and 9. Paul has decided to organize a collection for the church over in Jerusalem. The believers there are in need of financial help. 
And Paul wants the Gentile churches to provide that help. The church in Corinth has made a commitment to contribute to that collection for Jerusalem. But as yet, they haven't made good on their commitment. So Paul devotes chapters 8 and 9 of this letter to the subject of giving and generosity. He's not going to command the Corinthians. We saw that in our passage last week. But he is encouraging them to follow through on the commitment they've made. And in the first part of our passage, we get some insight into the way Paul goes about his business with this collection. Paul's example teaches us that appearances matter. Now, first of all, let me tell you what I don't mean when I say that. Some of you know who this lady is. Hyacinth Bucket, star of the TV show Keeping Up Appearances. Hyacinth, I can't even say it. (laughs) She spends every episode pretending to be someone she's not, starting with her name. She insists on pronouncing it bouquet. Her whole life is based on the attempt to persuade the world, or at least her neighbors, that she's really upper class. But it's all just a sham. And it's constantly being exposed as a sham. And there are many people who approach Christianity that way. They think it's all about keeping up appearances. If you can just convince other people that you're moral and caring and wise, well, that's the important thing. On that view of Christianity, it's more important to appear to be holy and God-focused than to actually be holy and God-focused. That view of Christianity might be common, but it's not true Christianity. And it's not what we're talking about this morning. The Bible is clear that Christianity starts with a change in our mind and our heart. It begins when we realize our sin and our desperate need of God's mercy. We realize that our sin is offensive to God, however small it might seem to us. We give up our pride and we look to Jesus as our only hope. We put our trust in his death in place of sinful, death-deserving people like us. And at that point, we're changed. We're not the same people we used to be. Our hearts have been made new. We have a new spirit in us. This is how Paul described it in chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Christianity starts with a change in our mind and our heart. But we make a big mistake if we think that's all there is to say about Christianity. The Bible is clear that when our hearts have been changed, we will be eager to honor the God who has given us new life and to honor him in every little part of our life. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And this eagerness to glorify God will include eagerness not only to do what is right, but to be seen to do what is right. 
we will be concerned in a good way about appearances. We will want appearances to accurately reflect what God has done in our heart. That's what we mean when we say appearances matter. It's the kind of concern for appearances that Paul shows in our passage. The particular issue here is money. It's the collection that Paul is organizing for Jerusalem. And Paul wants to be seen to be clean in the way that the collection is carried out. Remember, there were no bank transfers at this time. The money would have to be physically collected and physically carried over long distances. And we know that a significant amount of money is involved here. Paul calls it a liberal gift. If we put all this together, the opportunities for misuse and foul play are huge. And so are the opportunities of being accused of misuse and foul play. Paul knows that he has enemies. He has people who are just waiting for an excuse to discredit him and his gospel message. Paul knows that even his friends might have concerns about this whole scheme. And so even as he works to make it happen, Paul is going to be very careful to be seen to be clean. What that means in practice is that he won't take the main responsibility for collecting and transporting the money. He's getting others involved. Titus, one of his co-workers, and then two delegates chosen by the churches. First of all, Paul mentions Titus in verse 16. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. Remember, Titus is being sent to collect the contribution from Corinth. Paul knows that Titus is well respected by the Corinthians. They know him personally. He's been there before. In fact, on his last visit, they gave Titus a better reception than they gave Paul. And from Paul's point of view, he has no problem in sending Titus because they share the same outlook and the same enthusiasm and aims. But Paul knows too that to be seen to be clean, he'll need to involve more than just one of his co-workers. So, verse 18 We are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. It turns out Paul isn't the only one who knows that appearances matter. The churches, in this context that means the Macedonian churches, have chosen this unnamed brother because he has a track record of serving God faithfully. He is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we mean the good news about Jesus. Churches need to be careful who they choose to represent them. If we apply this to our context, it means we should choose our church officers carefully. And we should be looking for the right things when we choose. 
A person's giftedness is not the main thing. Their success in their career is not the main thing. When we choose leaders to represent us, we need leaders who have a reputation for serving the gospel. In other words, we know that they're going to work to advance the fame of Jesus, not their own fame or their own agenda. Leaders set the tone, including the tone of our witness to the world around us. So we need to choose leaders who are going to serve the gospel, not bring the gospel into disrepute, or bury the gospel under a load of other priorities. Paul says in verse 19, he's carrying out this collection in order to honor the Lord himself. And it's clear that the Macedonian churches have the same goal. And so, in verse 20, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. Billy Graham is in his 90s now. But early on in his ministry, when he was just beginning to become well-known, he had an experience that set the tone for the whole of his future ministry. He'd just spoken at an evangelistic service. And during the service, an offering had been collected. As he packed up, he tipped the money into a bag and he threw the unzipped bag into the front seat of his car. Then as he got in to drive away, a reporter from a local paper snapped a photo in through his window. And the next day, the front page of the paper carried a picture of Billy Graham, gospel preacher, driving away with a bag of money. In fact, nothing out of order had happened. The offering was given to support Billy Graham and his ministry. But out of context, on the front page of a paper, it could be interpreted very differently. That experience taught Billy Graham that appearances matter. They can make or break our witness. And from that day on, he was very careful not only to do what is right, but to be seen to do what is right. Whatever people might think of Billy Graham, I don't know of anyone who questions his integrity. And one big reason for that is because he took care both about the state of his heart and about the way he did things. That was true not only with his finances, but in other areas as well, such as his hotel arrangements when he was traveling. He made sure that he was not open to accusations of being unfaithful to his wife. As we said earlier, this is not about faking appearances. It's about being careful about appearances so they don't mislead people as to what we're really about. It's about taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. Now, obviously, none of us is a Billy Graham. And not many of us will ever be involved in big fundraising campaigns. But this issue of appearances applies to all of us. 
First of all, as a church body, we have, for example, a child protection policy. We recently had some child protection training. We were made aware of issues related to the internet and child protection. This is not because we don't trust one another. It's because we want to take pains not only to do what is right, but to be seen to do what is right. We want the community around us and the parents who bring their children here to know that we sincerely care about children and young people. We want them to be safe. We don't want to take anything for granted. We don't want to cut any corners. And we want to show people that we're not a law unto ourselves. We could come up with more examples. As a church, we want to make sure that appearances confirm our message rather than discrediting our message. And what about on a personal level? As individual Christians, our friends and family can't see into our heart. So what impression do they get from the outward appearance of our lives? Do they see a life that matches up with our message? Or would they conclude that we bend the same rules and cut the same corners as other people? I know that we can be careful and still be misunderstood. That often happened to Paul. But he did what he could not to give people reason to misunderstand him. Do people know that they can trust us? Or do we act like we have something to hide? In our work, are we scrupulous when we bill people for hours worked? Or are we sloppy? Is it very clear to people that we're not trying to cheat them or take advantage of them in our work? Is it clear that we're not going to waste our employer's time? We're not going to waste our company's resources? Is it obvious that we put our best into our work? Or would people get the impression that we don't really care? When you go out with friends, or when you're on Facebook, are people able to tell that you are a new creation in Christ? What impression is your life giving to your neighbors? Would they get the impression that you live for possessions or for entertainment or for holidays? Or is it clear to your neighbors that Jesus is your priority? Paul says he takes pains to do what is right. That phrase has the sense of giving forethought. It's about thinking in advance what kind of witness we'll be giving if we do this or that, and if we do it in this or that way. So this is not about being a slave to what other people think. It's about doing our best to make sure that our lives show people what's on our hearts. Paul is certainly not living in fear of what people think of him. His motivation is that he loves God and he wants to honor God. If he takes pains to be above reproach 
and people still misunderstand him, well, there's nothing Paul can do about that. But he's not going to give them reason to misunderstand him. And that's to be our pattern as well. In verses 22 to 23, Paul mentions the second unnamed delegate who's going to help oversee the collection. He says in verse 23, those two unnamed brothers are an honor to Christ. That description of them sums up what we've been talking about. We want our lives to stand out as an honor to Christ. Look how Paul puts it to the Corinthians in verse 24. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Paul is not questioning the Corinthians' love. He wants them to show it so others can see it. In this context, that will mean contributing to the offering they have promised to contribute to. And that leads us to our second point. Accountability is crucial. The word accountability is important because this is not about Paul coercing the Corinthians to give. They've already said they want to give. They've shown eagerness and enthusiasm. And now, knowing about their eagerness and enthusiasm, Paul is encouraging them to follow through with their good intention. Look again how he puts it in chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. We saw last week that Corinth is in a region called Achaia. And the region of Macedonia is north of Achaia. And what has happened is that the Corinthians have told Paul they're going to help. He has traveled on from Corinth to Macedonia, and he's mentioned this to the churches in Macedonia. The Macedonians have been inspired to give as well. And as we saw last week, they gave despite being in extreme poverty themselves. But the Corinthians as we know, haven't yet delivered on their commitment. And so Paul is sending Titus and the two Macedonian delegates ahead of him to Corinth, and he will come later, possibly with more Macedonians. And Paul hopes it will all be sorted out and ready by the time he arrives. That way it won't turn into a hasty, embarrassing whip-round. What's at the heart of this? The heart of it is the Corinthians had good intentions, but they weren't so good at turning them into action. 
Someone has said the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We might change that slightly and say the road to a fruitless Christian life is paved with good intentions. We need to be challenged to turn our good intentions into actions. But usually we need more than that. We need someone to hold us accountable to turn them into actions. That's what Paul is doing with the Corinthians. They have told Paul they want to give to the collection. He believes them. And now he's holding them accountable to actually do it. I would guess all of us have had the experience of hearing some teaching from God's word. And as we hear it, we have a clear sense of how we need to respond to it. And we want to. We have the very best of intentions. But those intentions never get turned into actions. What we need is someone to hold us accountable. Someone to help us do what we actually want to do. The Corinthians were blessed. They had Paul. That might not always have felt like a blessing, but it was a blessing. So who do you have? Maybe if we're honest, most of us would say, no one. No one who really knows us well enough to know how God is challenging us. No one who knows about our good intentions to respond to God's challenge. It's not a bad thing to need the equivalent of a Paul in our life. It's not a sign that we are somehow a weak Christian. It's just normal. The New Testament has no concept of lone ranger Christians who sort everything out by themselves. God has not set things up that way. The church is a fellowship. J.R.R. Tolkien gave us a good picture of fellowship when he wrote The Lord of the Rings. Frodo was not sent off by himself to fulfill his mission. He was part of a team, the Fellowship of the Ring. And he needed the others to help him fulfill his good intentions, to take that ring and throw it into Mount Doom. Sometimes preachers talk to their congregation as if they're Christians who don't want to live for God. But I believe that nine times out of ten, the congregation is in full agreement with the preacher. They do want to live for God. What they need is someone to hold them accountable. Maybe you want to be more consistent about your Bible reading. Or maybe you want to read a couple of good Christian books. And maybe you've been wanting to do that for the last five years. I would encourage you to seek someone out who will either read them as well, or at least keep asking if you're reading them. Maybe you struggle with what you look at on the internet. Get some software like Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes will monitor the sites that you visit, and it will send reports to an accountability partner. 
Seek out someone who's willing to receive those reports and then talk to you about them. Maybe you struggle with your witness at work or at school. Find someone who can regularly talk to you about that. Someone who will pray with you and pray for you. Maybe you're not very good at making it to church or to home group regularly. Ask someone to call you ahead of home groups or ahead of church, maybe on Saturday night or Sunday morning or both. If you're not in a home group, ask someone to help you get in one. And you might say, but I'm really too shy for that kind of thing. Or I don't know anyone well enough. Then do it this morning. We've already been talking about it. There's never going to be an easier day for you to mention this to someone. And if someone approaches you this morning, well, now you're not going to be taken by surprise. Be responsive to them. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That's what this is about. Let's assume that all of us want to live a life of love and good deeds. We want to be a light in the darkness, a part of God's city on a hill. If that wasn't true, we probably wouldn't be sitting here. And to help us do what we want to do, our Father in heaven has placed us in a family. You're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. Let one of them know that you are eager to respond to God. Ask them to help you follow through on your good intentions. We're going to try to bring some of this together with our closing two songs. The first song is, We Need Each Other's Voice to Sing. And then we have this treasure from the Lord our God. 